The message comes to us today from John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, or an aromatic kapatha. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word from our king. Well, we continue in our series this morning um, called Good Friday leading up to Easter. And as we do, um, I'm uh, rediscovering again Uh, the reality that the gospel of John is so incredibly tough in understanding its theology. 
The theology of the Gospel of John is told in narratives. It is told in stories, whereas uh, Romans, which I think is probably the most difficult the, uh, theological uh, book to understand in the New Testament, at least it's uh, statements that you dig into. And so this morning, we are going to delve into this uh, uh, account in the life of Jesus and discover some things about the word power uh, or the illusion of control. Control. Uh, What do I mean by it? Well, let me give you just a very recent uh, experience in this illusion. Our son, Trent, plays basketball, and yesterday he played three games, the last of which was late last night, 9 o'clock. When I walked into the gym, I was told that the... uh, the uh, the refs were, were horrible, they said. These are terrible refs uh, that uh, Coach Pryor had been kicked out. The other coach had been teed up. A few players had been teed up. And these refs really weren't that good. And so uh, Hannah was with me. Wendy had to work. And Hannah was with me. And, and, and Hannah and I talked. And I remember saying to Hannah, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so sure enough, the game started. And they were right. These refs did not know how to call a game. Well, I know so little about basketball, but if I'm going to try to control any situation, my method is my mouth. It is the same mouth I use to preach the gospel that my brain just makes up clever phrases that I think ought to be heard by large numbers of people in uh, those kinds of situations. And Hannah, you know, is just kind of patting me and making sure that I'm being decent. And there were some horrible no calls. I leaned over and said to Hannah at one point, I don't think it was loud enough for the refs to hear. He wouldn't know a charge if it showed up on his credit card. (laughs) And Hannah just kind of shook her head. I said to Wendy later, I don't think these refs could call 911 if they were in an emergency. It was just awful on both sides. It was, I mean, we won big. It was, that wasn't the case. It was awful all the way around. But I watched power plays just happen right on the court and refs trying to control coaches. Yeah, one got teed up right away. All of this stuff, I watched players trying to figure out how are we going to manipulate all of this. It was a massive little microcosm for a game that really didn't matter that much reality. of power and control. And do you know what? And, And you're going to have to hang with me this morning. We are so used to this in this country that we don't know how to think outside of the, of the realm of wielding our power. We all do power plays in different ways at different times for different reasons. Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a theologian in the mid-1900s, said he believed all humans struggle with the sense of being dependent and powerless. 
The original temptation in the Garden of Eden was to resent the limits he says God had put on us and to seek to be as God by taking power over our own destiny. Ravi Zacharias adds this, in the Garden of Eden there was only one prohibition, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you know why that was so, he says? Because in the day that you do it, you shall become as God, knowing good and evil. And then Zacharias says, in the day you do that, you will play God defining good and evil. That's what it means. The one prohibition was don't play God because in the day you do it, you will die. You will kill the very purpose for which you were created to have communion with God, not to become God. And so what we see unfolding before us today is Pilate in a predicament, but he isn't the only one. The Roman soldiers are addicted to power too. The chief priests are addicted to power too. And some of you are in the same predicament today. As a matter of fact, this whole uh, story climaxes in this uh, statement by none other than the Jews. We have no king but Caesar. And what they say is Pilate's mantra, it is the mantra of the Roman soldiers and the Jews who hated the Romans are actually the ones who say it. And I would ask you this morning, if you were to honestly complete this sentence in your brain, I have no king but, how would you complete the blank? We're Americans, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, we have stories of walking uphill both ways in the driving snow in Florida to get to school, don't we? Even though there's no snow in Florida and nor hills. We're self-made people. Until you replace whatever your personal slogan is, I have no king but, and you fill in that blank with I have no king but Jesus. You will move from one empty earthly pursuit to another, unsatisfied. This leads then to two really simple but profound truths. We are not in control. God is in control. We are not in control. God is in control. It is a gruesome scene. Jesus is flogged. The Romans had three levels of beatings for... uh, Criminals, and this is not the worst. I think Jesus was beaten twice in this whole deal, and this was probably the lowest level, but it was still awful. And once the beating is done, uh, just keep in mind at this point, Jesus is not out in public. He's not in the crowd at all. He's, he's in Pilate's headquarters. It's just Jesus and it is the guard, uh, the, the soldiers. And once the beating is done, they weave together a crown of thorns. This crown of thorns that they weave together uh, is most likely made of the thorns of date palms. Date palms, thorns grew to be about 12 inches long. 
they weave together this crown of thorns. Uh, Most likely the soldiers weren't trying to hurt Jesus. Uh, We tend to think that they were mocking him. Uh, He's a would-be king. Let's put a crown on his head. Uh, And then they complement it with a royal purple robe. Let's dress him in a purple robe. And then let's come to him and we'll call him a king. And once we call him a king, we'll slap him through the face. And that's what they're doing. Pilate goes out to the crowd. He went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. All right. Just a little bit of digging in the Old Testament reveals that when Israel had their first king, whose name was Saul, and Saul was announced, if you go read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, three words were said to announce the first king of Israel. Behold, the man. Pilate, who thinks he's in control, is announcing the arrival of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Wow. Pilate, who thinks he is in control, he works for the largest kingdom and the most successful kingdom of up until its time in history. It is Rome for whom Pilate works. And he announces, he mimics, he says verbatim what was said about Saul, Israel's first king. When the chief priest and the officer saw him, Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, Mr. Powerful Pilate, he was even more what? Afraid. What? All right. The illusion of control brings fear every time, every single time. You know what is interesting? Who ought to be afraid here? Who should be afraid? Jesus. Why? Pilate can say the word and he'll be crucified. There is an angry mob outside that wants him to be crucified. And before he is to be crucified, he will be beaten with the third, the worst beating of all. What would they do? They would strip him completely naked, tie him to a post. They would take a a leather belt long with stone and, and metal and and nails or something in it like that. And they would come down on the prisoner's back until literally the back is shredded. The entrails are seen. The Romans actually felt this to be merciful because it sped up dying on the cross. You would think Jesus would be afraid. Why is Pilate afraid. Niebuhr again argues that man is insecure and he seeks to overcome his insecurity by a will to power. We pretend we're not limited. Tim Keller adds, human beings have very little real power over their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely outside their control. Think about this. 
This includes the century and place they are born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances they find themselves in. In short, all we are and have is given to us by God. We are not infinite creators, but finite, dependent creatures. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? If LeBron James was a foot shorter, you may not know his name today. That's the reality. My only claim to fame is that I'm a nerd. Uh, no lie, I'm a nerd. That's, that's it. Never played a sport in my life. Don't know anything. I've watched Trent play for years and Hannah play for years. If you ask me three rules of volleyball, I couldn't give them to you. I have no acumen for it at all. Or basketball, I learn as I watch them, but still there's so little. I know that if I yelled at a ref, the ref would probably laugh because of my ignorance. But I'm a nerd. And I can't ever take credit for that. I remember in kindergarten, my, my mom getting a, a note written by the kindergarten teacher. I grew up in East Tennessee, way back in the woods. My mom gets a note from the kindergarten teacher, Jerry. He's read every book we have in the class and every book fitting for him in the library. Take him to the public library. <laughs> no lie. I get to third grade, I take a test, and on that test, it's determined that my reading level as a third grader is actually at 12th grade level. I'm in third grade. Third grade. My dad only went to the fifth grade. My mom didn't graduate high school. So, so can I somehow take credit for my ability at this point in my life to devour books, to read voraciously, to uh, listen and hear things and take them in just so quickly. No. No. Do you know all it would take would be one stroke and I'm done. My brain is gone. And all that through the years I've processed Pilate is shaking in his shoes. Why? Well, Roman leaders were, were not many things, but one thing they were was superstitious. They really were. And he thinks, oh, this could be a man of the gods. Like this guy in front of me, he may be legit. And I've just had him beaten, and he's afraid. So he brings it back in. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate's superstition is killing him right now. Do you know what he's thinking? Don't miss this. Could Jesus do something to me? Do you know what I'm convinced Jesus is thinking? I really could do something for you. Pilate is, could he do something to me? Jesus is like, oh, I'd love to do something for you. Please hear me. God can do nothing for people who can do everything for themselves. God can do nothing for people who can do everything for themselves. Uh. Jesus' silence is golden. It allows Pilate's true heart to emerge. 
Pilate said, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered you over, me over to you has the greater sin. This leads us to our second reality, our second binding truth. God is in control. John Piper explains, now listen, I say this sometimes to my classes at Montreat when I teach. This is a time where you you sit up straight, all right? We're going to dive down deep, throw on the oxygen, we'll figure it out. All right, we got to. John Piper explains, Pilate's authority to crucify Jesus did not intimidate Jesus. Why not? Not because Pilate was lying. Not because he didn't have authority to crucify Jesus. He did. Rather, this authority did not intimidate Jesus because it was derivative authority. Jesus said, it was given to you from above. All right, so let me give you a quote on the screen. This does not intimidate Jesus because Pilate's authority over Jesus is subordinate to God's authority over Pilate. Jesus gets his comfort at this moment, not because Pilate's will is powerless, but because Pilate's will is guided Not because Jesus isn't in the hands of Pilate's fear, I love this sentence, but because Pilate is in the hands of Jesus' Father. Jesus isn't in the hands of Pilate's fear, but Pilate is in the hands of Jesus' Father. So you say, Jerry, uh, give me an image. I knew you would ask, so here we go. All right. This is how I think we can view all of this reality of this sermon. Maybe I could have preached this sermon in about two and a half minutes. And if so, if I'd only be given two and a half minutes, here's what I would have said. There are two sets of hands by which you can choose to live your life. Yours and God's. All right. Here's how it works. If you choose to live your life with your hands, you will cling tightly to whatever it is, is yours. If it's your career, you will work to wrestle everything you can out of it. If it's your health, you will go overboard to make sure you don't age. If it is your money, you will watch the market and the investments voraciously, making sure that you don't lose a dime. If it is your children, you will be the consummate helicopter parent who flies low and watches every move they make. Whatever it is, you will hold so tight to it. That's living life with your hands. That's called control. Or you can live your life with God's hands. Now, what does that look like? That's why Jesus could sit and stare down the cross with peace. Pilate, you think you have authority, but if God didn't give it to you, you wouldn't have it. And since he is the ultimate authority, I'm trusting him, not you. In other words... My life is in his hands. So you have a choice. My life is in my hands or my life is in his hands. You cannot straddle the fence. You either live here or you live here.
God is in control. The British poet W. Henley had a leg amputated as a teenager. He went on to have a great career as a critic and author. And there's a poem that you know he wrote. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. But Niebuhr adds, this is an enormous exaggeration of view of reality distorted, inflicted with the sin of pride. No one wants to minimize the importance of learning to overcome obstacles in one's life. But Henley's success would have been impossible had he been born without literary talent, with below average IQ, or with different parents and social connections. God is in control. We can live holding tightly and in our hands, or we can live hands open into the hands of God. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Isn't that interesting? Powerful Pilate can't exercise his power as he wishes. He sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The Jews now are engaged in a power play. This is how life goes. If you live by control, you will try to control everyone and everything around you, and they in turn, if they play your game, will control right back. And so Pilate is now being played by the Jews. So when Pilate heard these words, this is all it took. He didn't think Jesus was guilty. He wanted to release him, but he couldn't. Why? He had no king but Caesar. He had to worship Caesar. He did not know life apart from Caesar. Why did the soldiers smack Jesus in the face? They had no king but Caesar. Uh, the Jews who hated Caesar, here we go. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat. Jesus is now publicly there. He's standing with the purple robe, the crown of thorns, the blood coming down. He's beaten, his face is red. He's bruised, he's battered. He doesn't look like a king at all. But what is Pilate going to do? I'm playing the power game now. I'm going to play the power game, he says. It was about the six hours around noon. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Let me make fun of them. That's what he's doing. I'll throw this right back at them. They cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify them. him. Pilate is playing them. He keeps on. Shall I crucify your king, he says. He's mocking them. He's going to have the last word. Why? He's powerless. Pilate is who he is. Though all he knows is the God of power. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Wow. What has been lost here? This was blasphemy for a Jew to give allegiance to any king but God. Oh, we'll sell our soul to the devil, the Jews are saying. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate has already done it. The soldiers have done it. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I ask you, who is your king or what is your king? In a good little book called Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller tells the story of a friend of his he met in seminary. The friend uh, came to Christ after an awful life before him. His life before Christ was characterized by girls. He'd meet a girl, have sex with her, and then be done with her. 
another girl, same thing and done. Another, same thing and done. As it turned out, the, the guy was never drawn to the girls at all. He just liked the power of being able to do what he did. And then he came to Christ. And when he came to Christ, what happened? Well, Keller says, I end up in class with him. And he was the student who had to be right every time. He was the student who would argue anyone down over anything, who could never lose. He became a theological power monger who used his theology to beat up everybody around him. What Keller so aptly says is that his power idol took a sexual form and then a religious one. He never ceased to be addicted to power. How would you really finish the sentence, I have no king but? When you have illusions of control, the symptoms are easily detected. Fear. Worry. Unidentifiable anxiety. Insecurity. Bullying. Asserting your authority. Manipulating others. Could be your wife, your husband, your kids, uh, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Manipulating others to get your way. If we were to ask your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, and your employees to finish the sentence for you, how would they finish it? He or she has no king but. Those are the symptoms. There's only one antidote for the sickness of power idolatry. His name is Jesus. Philippians 2. Consider Christ, who though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and becoming obedient and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You say, Jerry, how do I deal? Consider him. Christianity is the only religion with a cross. It's the only one. You, you, you give up your power as he gave up his power in serving. Jesus became the most influential man who ever lived. You say, how do I do it? Oh, my goodness. Admitting your sin and your powerlessness. You realize that the power of sin that has wrecked your life is not as powerful as the power of a crucified Christ who resurrected three days later, who can now come in and be in charge of your life. And you can say with great assurance, I have no king but Jesus. 
I have no king but Jesus. He calls the shots. So some of you are saying, Jerry, I have done that. If you haven't, please talk to us after the service. But if you have, but you're asking me in your mind, because you do in my office during the week, do you ever try to wrestle it back from God? (laughs) Ah, yes. Certain personality types struggle with this more, but all personalities try to control in different ways. And yes, I do. So here's what I have learned to do, literally in prayer. I bring some things to God that I think I know how to fix. Or I definitely want to see the outcome I want to see. And when I bring them to God in prayer, they're right here in my hands. I'm holding tightly to them. And do you know what I honestly, and this may seem so trite to you, but I'm just saying as a man, a pastor who struggles greatly with this at times, that I bring maybe the person I counsel who doesn't follow my counsel, and I know they're rushing headlong into sin, or, or maybe it's a decision I'm trying to make, or perhaps it is... Um, my children, or perhaps it is a financial decision, whatever it may be, it's there, right? And here's what I've learned to do, learning to do. I take my hands, and I'm honest to God about what it is, and I'll just do this right here. Now, I'm going to tell you that everything in my control and personality wants to do that. As soon as I turn my hands over. But I say, God, here they are. And I drop them into these big hands of God. Maybe the little kid's song isn't so little after all. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. And I get up from that morning time, trusting the one whose hands are much bigger than mine. 